Lord, uh, thank you just for this day. Um, we don't want to take anything for granted, the fact that we woke up, that you give the life. Uh, it comes from you, and Lord, I pray we see your hand in all things today and every day, um, that you sustain us, and more than that, you provided uh, not just for our daily needs, but for our future in Christ Jesus. I pray that our eyes are fixed on him. Um, I pray as we study the Gospels of the life and, and uh, deeds and obedience of Christ Jesus, that we are more in awe, that our hearts become full of joy and also hearts of servitude to the King. We are in your kingdom. We are grateful. Nothing will stand against it, and therefore nothing will stand against us in our future. And that I pray that we take great confidence and boldness. Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3. And uh, we didn't quite finish the section 22 through 29 or 30. So we will do that. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. But Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. <clears throat> okay, so uh, I find this scene interesting. I mean, there's lots of different reasons, but one of, the thing that, one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is Jesus doesn't just deny their accusations. He refutes them with uh, reason and also with parables. So I think it was... Wasn't Martin Luther, when he was on trial, said, unless I'm convinced by the clear teaching of Scripture and reason, uh, I will not recant the accusation or the things that I've said. Um, you know, certainly man's reason is flawed and can lead to wrong conclusions, but Jesus uses reason as a tool to refute them, right? Uh, he, they say, you must be doing these things through the power of Satan, and he says simply, guys, that just doesn't make sense because I'm casting out demons. If I'm doing that by the work of Satan, then that is inherently a self-destructive task. So Jesus points out the destructive power of division. I think we mentioned this last week that Satan is a divider from the very beginning. Genesis, he divides the man and the woman. He divides God from humanity. He divides even in, in the act of the fall, sort of man from creation itself. And although he's a divider, he would not divide himself because that's counterproductive. Uh, if Satan is destroying his own works, what does he stand to gain by doing that? So Satan is indeed quite clever. He's a trickster. I think we kind of see that a little bit in like Job when Satan comes before God and uh you know, kind of almost seems to goad God. And, um, the, but the fact of the matter is he, he is a fool. Even though he is clever and he is a trickster, he's also a fool. And I think we see that in, in the fact that he remains persistent in this effort to undermine and destroy the kingdom of God, steal glory from God, when it's laid out for him in God's word that his defeat is assured. It's inevitable. Okay, so did I mention last week Revelation 17 kind of talking about um, uh, the, prost yeah, the, the, the beast devouring the prostitute that initially is riding on the back of the beast? Did I mention that? Okay, I think that that is a picture of actually that Satan coming to his end being divided where his prior ally now becomes something that he's feasting on maybe in a, in, in a sense of desperation. So the parable of the strong man. Who is the strong man? Yeah, Satan is the strong man, right? Um, but Jesus is the stronger man. I mean, if you can bind a strong man, uh, unless you're using some kind of trickery, you are stronger than the strong man. 
So Jesus is the stronger man who has come to plunder what Satan has essentially stolen. Uh, you know, the stolen property of man, the stolen property of earth. Satan, I think, has sort of held this captive. What's interesting is, is anybody familiar with Stockholm Syndrome? What is Stockholm Syndrome? Somebody who knows. It's where you start to sympathize with your captor. Yeah, you begin to actually feel feelings of maybe affection or trust or, or allegiance to your captor. So, you know, somebody who gets kidnapped maybe over time will begin to sort of feel an affection or an, an affinity towards the person that kidnapped them. It's a strange psychological phenomenon. Um, and, of course, all of the parables that Jesus gives have some sort of limit to them, okay? But uh, if we think about Satan being this guy who is holding humanity sort of captive... We don't. It, it's just interesting to see the way that people sort of unintentionally ally themselves with him, right? It's almost like all of humanity has a case of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, we actually, in many ways, would rather remain captive in his home than be set free by Christ, the stronger man who's come to redeem us. So Jesus is tearing down the, the works of Satan by binding up, um, by casting out demons. By casting out demons, he's doing this work of binding the strong man. And Jesus says in John 10, 10, that Satan came to, or the thief, which is Satan, has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and life abundantly. So there is a little bit of a controversy here, I, I think, related to Revelation. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verses like 1 through 14, talks about Satan being bound for a time. And uh, there is some question whether that is relating to a future event that will happen, or whether, uh, whether Revelation is referring to actually the church age. What do you guys think? Church age. You think so? Why do you say that? Well, I think people misunderstand the imagery that Jesus is talking about here. It's not that Satan's bound and tied in the chair, like, permanently. He's using imagery like, look, if you want to plunder my house, you're going to have to get from me. I'm going to defend my house. If I want to plunder Moshe's house, I'm going to have to go through his, his father or whoever's the strongest guy in the house. When Christ comes, he's taking things from the devil. This is his place. That's what the, Lord, the Bible says. Is he's the priest. And um, Jesus is taking things and bringing them into his kingdom. It doesn't mean that he's bound in a chair and helpless and tired. It's just Jesus can continue to plunder from him, but the guy's still moving around. The other thing is Satan's just completely immobilized in this future thing, and I don't think that's what it's saying. Not, I mean, I, I could go on for an hour about this, um, but yeah, I mean... Satan is uh, is bound right now. This is how people are coming into the kingdom of God because Satan is not going to let them go. Yeah. How is that different than uh, the Old Testament? Was he bound in the Old Testament? No. <clears throat> so what's the difference? How would you describe the, the difference between what it looked like in the Old Testament versus what it looks like now? Or maybe we could say under the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. I, I feel like I, I said it, no? Like we're... Christ is taking people away from the kingdom of Satan and bringing them into his own. Got it. Satan would never allow that to happen if he could prevent it. Stand. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually agree with you. I mean, that's the position I hold as well. I think that when Revelation is referring to Satan being bound, that it is now. It's the new covenant era. It's the church age. There's lots of different perspectives on this. <clears throat> but I think under the old covenant... Satan essentially had free reign. I mean, he, he was running amok all over uh, creation and the earth. Whereas in this age, even though he remains kind of in authority until Christ's return, there is this subversive other kingdom that's growing and he can do nothing about it. Um, and so I think in, that's the sense in which Jesus is saying he's bound. Not that he is entirely powerless, but that... Christ is plundering what previously was under Satan's authority, and, um, and he can't do anything about it. 
So the point I'm making is I think that there is a connection between what Jesus says here regarding plundering the, the, the house of the strong man and what Revelation 20 verses 1 through 14 is referring to. So agree. Maybe one more comment on that. Yeah, I've been. It took me a while to come to that that view, and so I, I always feel sympathy towards others that are basically told the other view and not thinking it through. Is um, it sounds more noble to say I'm taking the Bible literally. When you get to Revelation, it says Satan will be bound a thousand years. Um, the they, they, they say, look, we're taking the Bible literally. You're putting imagery on it, but the the idea is to think through that. We need to take the Bible as it's intended to be written, and Revelation is written in such a way as it is imagery and and stuff like that, not to be taken literally. It means something literal. It's trying to t- say a point, but it's not to be taken. The numbers and imagery are not to be. We're not. Jesus is not a lamb. He's a person. He's a symbolically a lamb, but it says Jesus is a lamb, right? Nobody right. believes that. You're not taking the Bible literally there. Extrapolate that out to Revelation. A thousand, you know. Yeah. A thousand years doesn't necessarily mean a literal thousand years. It's just like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle on all the hills. Right. It's saying he is trying to tell you in poetic form. So, I mean, I just want people to yeah. do that. And we're not being loosey-goosey with the Bible when we say things like that. We're yeah. trying to take it. As it's right, right. Uh, yeah, different people mean different things when they say that they take the Bible literally. I take the Bible absolutely literally, but within the context of the genre that, that I'm reading, right? I mean, when Proverbs says, consider the ant, you sluggard, I don't think that I literally need to lay down on the ground and look at ants. I, I just, I'm drawing from that the application that these are creatures that are busy all the time. And that if you're going to learn from that example, then don't be lazy, right? So there's lots of different things like that. And Revelation is tricky too, because so much of the imagery comes from the Old Testament. And, um, and, and so I think it's drawing on that bank of like kind of literary history to give us pictures and images that, um, yeah, that I think can get a little tricky if it's like, we, we have to read this literally in the sense that like the image is the exact thing that we should be looking for or expecting. So what's, in, what's interesting is the people that tell you it's literal and then the beast coming out of the sea, but then when you listen to them, there's not a literal beast coming out of the sea, it's some kind of war and some whatever they've made up, yet they're the ones that throw that literal thing at you. Yeah, and I think I think it's hard to be consistent in that all the way through Revelation, like kind of no matter where you land, because. You know, I, I think even maybe at one point you you said to me, I don't remember what we were talking about. Like, well, are you are you now reading that literally when you're figuratively giving you know you're, you're crediting figurative language to this thing over here? I, I think it is tough to read Revelation and be totally consistent there. So, and maybe that's intentional so that we read it very closely and thoughtfully. Um, my my point here is I think that when Jesus is talking about the binding. Um, and that was helpful. Thank you for adding all that. I think that we are getting this idea that Satan still, ha- it, it, it is still Satan's house, if you will. He still has a measure of authority here. We can see that clearly when we look around in practice, right? But uh, even as it is his quote unquote property, it is being siphoned away from him by the kingdom growth that Jesus has brought. So. Okay, let's get into another sort of tricky part. Verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Man, even here we have to read very carefully, don't we? Truly, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Does that mean every sin that man engages in will be forgiven? That would be universalism. So it doesn't mean that. It means that every kind of sin that man might engage in is forgivable. Anybody, would anybody disagree with that? Rick, you disagree? Well... You certainly can't mean the word all in the universalist sense. What I would say is Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and the sin that remains now is unbelief. And 
that's like the problem. That's the one. So you do you think in this passage then he is dealing with the sin of unbelief? Uh, and all can't mean all because then unbelief would be still a sin remaining. Well, well he says all except, right? Right. But, you know, there is that exception clause in verse 29. You're, but You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is to, not, to deny the power of Christ. I mean, that he is God. I mean, that's the new command is that Jesus is God. Follow him. Yeah. All that don't. Now, I'm just trying to deal with all the all the verses that say Take exactly that, right. that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, uh, the whole world, and um, and I'm not trying to put my spin on it to fit my doctrine. I'm trying to fit what it says, like, and uh, and I and I believe that's what John t- teaches us. He teaches Nicodemus is that look, you know, if those that don't believe are condemned already. That's what you're going to ultimately answer to God for is what you did with Christ. Yeah, not about all your sins. Right, Christ died for those. Like, but he didn't die for you to be in unbelief. That's the thing that's going to keep you out of heaven. That's the yeah. sin. He just didn't cover that sin. You have to believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think I actually am in that camp as well. That um, it, it's just tough because the. Yeah, I mean, you you only get the application of that death and forgiveness if you receive it and if you repent. Otherwise, actually, that will be the thing that condemns you, right? The cross was here, and it was here for you, but you did not turn. And so, all actually... All your sins are on you. All, yeah, all your sins all are on you. you. And it's even worse than that, because not only are all your sins on you, but the one that is most egregious in the eyes of God is that God made a way. Christ's blood was shed for you, and you spurned it, Right? I mean, I, I really don't, you know, if you can imagine some people sitting around in hell like they might in prison and be like, what you in for, man? I don't think anybody's going to be like, I'm here because I lied to my mom in third grade. No, it's going to be, I'm here because Christ made a way and I refuse to receive it. So, um, I don't know that this is necessarily the best passage to develop all of that from. But I think this could be a starting place for that. Uh, I think what we're getting at here is like attributing the good, true, holy, righteous works of the Holy Spirit to Satan is an unforgivable sin. And let me unpack that, okay? Uh, I think that the implication here seems to be that actually the Pharisees know but they are willfully propagating a lie. So Romans 1, 18 through 22, I think kind of touches on this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So this is what we would call natural revelation. Natural revelation is not sufficient to lead somebody to the gospel. In other words, you can't look at these new James Webb telescope photos that have just been published and go, Jesus died for my sins and I should repent. But you can look at those and go, there must be a maker. This does not come from this complexity. This immensity does not come from nothing, right? The universe is not eternal and self-existent that's obvious okay but men suppress the truth and in doing so they are culpable before god they become responsible to him for what they should know but claiming to be wise they become fools you know so i don't know if i'm friends with all y'all on facebook but i was engaging in some facebook debates about abortion And it's just fascinating to watch people wiggle and twist their way to defend this heinous act of murdering children in their mother's wombs. Um, It's clear, it's it's obvious, and yet people suppress the truth and they make these arguments claiming to be wise, they look like fools. 
And I think that what we're sort of dancing around here is that if you persist down this road of denying what is obviously true, then you get to a place where your heart is so hard, there's no coming back. I think that's what Jesus is, is referring to. Um, along that journey, there are lots of opportunities for you to repent and believe. And, and I mean, until the story is totally done, I, I think there's lots of opportunities. Meaning until, until you take your last breath, there are lots of opportunities. But if you continue down that road, you're making it more and more difficult. Does that make sense? So the, the grace of God is truly limitless. But I think giving glory to Satan for the clear and obvious work of the Spirit of God reveals a heart that's so hard that there's nothing left to be done for it. It's beyond repentance. So it's not necessarily that the sin itself is unforgivable, maybe in this life, but rather <clears throat> that the sin comes from a fruit of a heart that would never choose repentance. It's the final stage of a heart that's so filled with rot that there's nothing left. So John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, not even, to not even pray for these people. Yeah. If anyone, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And I think ultimately it's, it, it is persistent unbelief. Maybe that was a cryptic roundabout way of me saying that, but I think at the core here you have hard-hearted, persistent unbelief. There's nothing to be done for that. If you refuse the call to repent and believe. There's no other way. Anybody have another take on it or want to add anything else to that? Yeah, look again at verse 29. Whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. I mean, refusing... To, like it's the Holy Spirit that births faith in us, gives us faith, opens our eyes. And if you refuse that, what else is left for you? Nothing. <clears throat> All right. Well, if nobody else wants to add anything there, we'll pick up in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. You know what? Before I move on, I, I think I should mention just like, I should go back and say, you know, I, I don't think anybody who's like afraid of violating this or the passage from First John um, should be anxious about that. Because... If you feel this weight of like guilt, then just turn to Jesus, right? Turn to him in belief, receive his forgiveness. You don't need to like worry that maybe you've done some sin that is unforgivable. Good question. Yeah. So <clears throat> the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit prior to conversion, they are converted at that point. I mean, they... Right? And then is that sin forgiven? It's not forgiven, correct? Because it's an unforgivable sin. Well, that's why I used the word persistent. Because I think Paul would fall in that category, wouldn't he? I would, I would think so. I'm just curious about that because I've wondered that. You know, uh, I've known people who were avid atheists who, you know, publicly did that those things and then later had made professions of faith. And I, I've always wondered about that. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. Again, I think that word persistent is helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the longer you persist in that, the harder your heart becomes, the more, the more it kind of calcifies. Or men just really choose not to, you know, believe in, 
his statement. He, we have the freedom to choose, you know. So yeah, men just choose not. Okay, I'm I'm in this side, so I'll stay in this side. So that's, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And maybe Pharaoh is kind of an example of this because, mm -hmm. like, if you look at that text, it's got a weird um, assortment of, of attributions to where the hardening comes from. Yeah, it's got like a a um, like a non-causal where it says, "And Pharaoh's heart was hardened." <coughs> It's got Pharaoh doing the hardening and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it's also got, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, whenever, yeah. No, no, no. I think it's, it's the human choose to harden. I mean, choose to harden the heart and then just God just said, okay, you choose that way, you go. Well, that's Romans 1. Yeah. Right? When when man does this and denies God, God gives him over uh -huh. to this delusion. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think God hardens people's hearts in that process. Absolutely. Because I believe that from the beginning, we are created in the image of God. So we have the spirit that tells us there is a creator and a God, but human choose to go in other direction anyway. So. Yeah. I don't know that I would use the, the word the spirit there, but like conscience. Conscience, yeah, something like that. You know, the, the idea of like God has put eternity in their hearts, like this, this awareness that there is a creator, our maker, who we are responsible before. Um, what were you going to say, Rick? Whenever I'm having trouble in the Gospels with like understanding something, it's, it's good to look at this, the other Gospels and how they say things. Yeah. And for instance, when on the mountain, all of the discourse back to kind of future things. Jesus says, when you see the desolation, the abomination, as a Jewish, as a non-Jewish person, I really don't have any idea what he's saying. But when I go to Luke, it's written to people like me who don't have the Jewish background. And so Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay, that's really helpful to me. Same thing here when, you, when we're trying to understand this. Luke says, it's talking about just denying Jesus. He says, um, um, Sorry. Anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me apart from men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So, I mean, I think that kind of helps me clarify. It's talking about, like, what do you do with Christ? That's what you won't be forgiven for. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it says. Yeah, and it, it doesn't say you can never be forgiven. It's sin. You won't be forgiven that sin if you die in that sin. You're done. Yeah, yeah. You had now the judgment. Yeah, and the judgment is you will stand before God, and God is either going to see Christ and you, and then we can't see you, or you're going to be standing there in the open. God's wrath is coming. Yeah, you'll either be clothed in your own sin or clothed in His righteousness. Um, so our lives need to be hidden in Christ. Yeah. Amen. It's the Passover imagery. God comes and sees the blood of Christ and passes over you because he can't. Yeah. The blood of Christ is covering you. Yeah. So to the to the person who is, you know, struggling with some anxiety about this like unclear sin that you might be guilty of doing that you can never have forgiveness for, um, that's not what this is suggesting. And and God is so kind to us, right? Like the, the first John chapter 5 passage and, and even this here like God does not want to leave you guessing and unclear on these things right like it would be torturous of God to say there's some sin that you could do that would make it so I would cut you off but I'm not going to tell you explicitly clearly what that sin is I'm just going to leave you guessing right that's not the God of scripture um so I think it is absolutely pointing this idea of like unbelief, persistent unbelief. And by the word persistent, I'm really just giving a different language to what you're saying, Rick, which is like if you die in that sin, right? If that unbelief persists through your death, then yeah, there's nothing for you. The, the way of Christ, you passed up, up on that opportunity. 
Suicide, right. And like, I mean, particularly that first John chapter five passage, because it says the sin that leads to death. Well, I think the word death there is not, uh, I don't think it's actually referring to like physical death. I think it's talking more like in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. This spiritual separation. But All right, let's pick up in verse 31. Uh, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother or my brother and sister and mother. Again, not literal language or at least not in like a biological sense. Um, many of the scenes where we find Jesus interacting with people, he's using the context around him to give kind of teachable moments, right? Um, I mean, in a sense, this too is a parable, even though it's not one that he tells with other characters. He's just using the scene to make an illustration for us. Jesus, I think, was a pretty awesome illustrator from just everyday events and here he's going to use his own biological family to show that the family of God is something that's greater than the biological family it's united by a common love for doing God's will right uh, look at verse 35 whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother so I think that this illustration does kind of connect back all the way to verse 25 um just as like you continuing to use the house illustration uh like the, the the family of god is united it's not divided um but biological families may be divided over christ but the faith family is united through christ so that's the faith in which we stand together. And the emphasis in Jesus' teaching is always on, this is super important, it's always on faith that leads to action. Okay, this comes up in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Let's look there just because I think that this is so instructive. What's the reference? Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. There's a lot of uh, stuff from, this is the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of stuff from the Sermon on the Mount that makes its way into popular culture, right? Do not judge. Why do you notice the sliver in your brother's eye, not the log in your own eye? Um, things like do to others as you would have them do to you. But there's a lot of stuff from this that doesn't make it into popular culture. Picking up in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. We don't need to keep going. The point is, there's a lot of emphasis there as Jesus is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close that just hearing these words, believing these words is not sufficient. You must have faith that produces action or the faith is bankrupt. Uh, I think this comes up again in this idea kind of comes up again in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. It comes up in Revelation chapter 20, verse 26. So there's lots of this through the teaching of Christ. Matthew 15, or John 15 is another one, right? Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The assumption is that if you're in Christ, fruit is the natural resulting outcome. Okay? One of the Bible studies we're studying Hebrews and that theme just comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and the Old Covenant God wasn't delighted in the sacrifices but Jesus said but I came to do your will and it, it's a big kind of hinge point that that's what God is pleased with is doing the will and then chapter 11 we just covered last Wednesday and it really is highlights what you're talking about is 
faith has actions in the list. Noah built an ark. He did that. You know, Abraham left his land. Abraham offered his son. Enoch walked with, you know, like it's all like action. Yeah. Yeah. Actions that show their belief, and that's what they're commended for. So yeah. They did something that demonstrated their belief. Absolutely. And I feel like this comes up quite a bit in adult Sunday school because we have the freedom to kind of tease it out, which is great. Um, I am not suggesting that you must work in order to earn God's favor. I am suggesting that when you turn in faith to Christ and the Spirit dwells in you, the natural result of that is obedience. And if there is no obedience, then there is no faith because the obedience is the product of the faith. Okay, And I think that, and I've probably mentioned this before in, in adult Sunday school as well, I think that this sort of is a tragic byproduct of the Reformation because the Catholics were saying you must do works and have faith and then God will accept you. And the Reformers came along and said, no, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you turn in repentance, God gives you faith, that's all a work of grace, and and then you, you follow Christ, right? And I think out of that, we sort of like hyper-focused on the grace and repentance and belief part. And in, in, in contrast to the Catholic Church, out of that sort of grew this really terrible heresy, actually, that you can have faith with no fruit, um, that you just need to, like, profess Christ, right? The Romans 10 verse, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Um, but if you just yank that verse out of its context and you don't understand everything else Scripture teaches about what faith actually does, then I think you end up with this really false assurance that people are being offered. Does that make sense? You think people hedge too much one direction? Is that what you're saying? Because of the fact that, you know, I, I, I've probably been guilty of that as well, thinking I, I want to make sure that any works that I'm doing is not for the sake of men to be seen, those types of things, and then... Yeah, I think the evangelicalism of the last, let's say, maybe 50 or even 100 years has been so eager to get people to profess Christ that we have lost, like, count the cost, right? We've lost this idea that faith produces fruit. And if you don't have fruit, you don't have faith. Like, we've just become uncomfortable with telling people that. Um, And I think that that's tragic. Because we don't want to be heard saying, you must earn God's favor through your works. <clears throat> but we should be clear and say, without works, there's no faith. Right? I mean, that's James. That's biblical. Right? I don't know why we complicate these things. Probably because people like me who make a living out of it need to keep people coming back to keep hearing it. Maybe if we call their sins that we're calling people to <clears throat> repent of, like adultery, or you know, pick, up, pick a sin that we just say, instead of saying, stop committing adultery, we just say, believe. Yeah. And just leave it at that right. and see what they do. Yeah. A truly, a truly born again Christian person is, there is, there is a um, conviction always when you do something wrong. So, yeah, it's, it's faith follow with action. <clears throat> yeah. Because you, you, you obey what the Bible tells you to do in, yeah. in your daily life. Absolutely. And, and part of that obedience might be just the obedience of repentance, right? Because we're all, we're all doomed to screw up along the way in some way, shape, or form. And so at the very least, the work that is attached to faith is repentance at the very least. Kind of in walking through that thing, like just saying God disciplines those that you know He loves, and so if they have a bad conscience, He's going to discipline them. The, the problem is they have a bad conscience, and then they turn to that doctrine of it's not about what I do; it's about Jesus, and then no action happens because Jesus covered your sin, and you're you're not really believing that Jesus creates a new heart. And yes, and to, to to love Him is to obey His commandments. That's what He said. Yeah, absolutely, Amen. And I would add to that what what we kind of talk about with baptism in Romans six when we do baptism that like you're dead to sin. Like, it is no longer your master. You're no longer obligated to do what it commands you to do. When it entices you, you're not, uh, you're not beholden to it, right? And, and yeah, so maybe that's the work piece, too, is like our faith leads to 
dying to self. Dying to self. Yeah, exactly. It, it, and it lead, leads to the power of sin no longer being um, master over us. So, yeah. We don't understand what being a servant is. Like, you always had to do what your master told you to do, whether it grieved you and it was painful and hard. Yeah. That's what a servant is. And we're servants of Christ. And then he tells us to put away all the cave. It's hard for people. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what you're called to do. You're just a servant. Yeah. And it and it is, in fact, possible because one, you're dead to sin, and two, you're alive to Christ, right? And he's given you the Holy Spirit. Yep. And Amen. you're blaspheming it by saying. Yeah. And there's other resources too. You've got the church, the family of God, that's a resource to encourage you and help you. You've got the word that teaches you what's good and right. You've got the spirit inside of you that empowers you. There's all kinds of resources in the journey. You think that that's like where we live now. Our freedoms are a, a negative in that sense because we don't have a king that we're bowing to. We don't have these I, the idea of servant, like that you said, true servants. Because of our freedoms, we just, you know. Yeah, certainly that's an idea that is like kind of culturally foreign to us in the text. I may have mentioned this before, but I remember learning that like in this biblical time, uh, you know, not not in like the Jerusalem context, but in the, the Greco-Roman world, if you were a servant, that typically you would literally sleep on a mat outside of your master's door. So that if in the middle of the night he cried out like, I want a drink of water, you would get up off your mat and you would go get the drink of water, right? It wasn't, it's not like we understand where it's like a clock out at five o'clock. No, you're, you're on every moment of every day to serve that master. All right, let's pick up in uh, chapter four. And he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. Talking about faith that produces works. This is what Jesus is describing in this parable. Um, I think this parable is a little bit tough. Well, well, let's just cover the basics first. Okay. So the parable of the sower, four possible seeds. You got the seed on the path. What happens to it? Yeah, devoured by the birds. You got the seed. Uh, at first, from here, Rick, it sounded like you said Burger King. And I was like, <laughs> I failed to see the... The birds came, right? Then you got the seed on the rocky ground. What happens there? Scorched. Scorched, right? Shallow roots. No nourishment. The sun scorches it. It withers. Seed among the thorns. Right? The competition comes in and takes away the nourishment. Seed on the good soil, what happens there? Multiplies. Multiplies, I like that. Fruit, it, it, it yields a crop. It, it, it reproduces in incredible ways. So what I think is kind of interesting about this is um, we're probably all really familiar with the parable, so we know where it's going. But uh, as we read on in the chapter, Jesus has to explain this to the disciples. It's not you know, immediately clear to them what he is talking about. So let's try and pretend for a moment like this is the first time we've ever heard this. What sense could we make of this teaching? I, I, think, I think we could make quite a bit of sense, but I don't know that we would get the totality of it without the description that Jesus gives us in just a bit. Okay, There's some sense we can make. Like we know that in order for seed to grow and be effective in producing a crop, it needs to go where? Good soil. In good soil, right? That's important. Seeds need good soil. We can understand that it's not the fault of the seed if it doesn't grow well 
in bad soil, right? Seeds need good soil. It's not a dysfunction of the seed if it fails to thrive in soil that's not good for it. So the parable is not about the effectiveness of the seed. It's more about the ground that receives it. We probably could assume that Jesus is talking about his teaching, right? Like we would understand that he's, he's not just telling a story about a sower. Like he's got a meaning here about probably the things that he's saying and, and how people hear it, I think. And I think that actually the Jewish mind might understand also that God has the power to make seeds grow, right? The Jewish mind didn't think that like agriculture just happened. In their mind, plants grew because God blessed them. Plants grew because God made that happen. God and his sovereignty was involved in everything. So I think they would probably attach some kind of meaning there. Maybe for some of the more educated, Isaiah chapter 5 would come to mind. I would love for you guys to flip there. At one point, I actually memorized this whole passage in Hebrew. Don't ask me to, don't even ask me to say it now. It's actually beautifully poetic. Like the sound of it is is really beautiful. I really like this, this passage. It's kind of... It's pretty, but also difficult. Let me sing from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing from my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So this is also a parable, isn't it? God, it's a parable about God planting a vineyard and he plants choice seed in it. And yet, what does it yield? Wild grapes. Um, And it would be understandable for a person who labored so hard to produce a vineyard to be frustrated at the soil that produced this kind of terrible crop. So fortunately for us, we do get an explanation of the parable. Look at verse 10 back in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. So this is more than just the 12 apostles. There's a wider group of disciples and they, they don't fully comprehend what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 11, and Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. There we go. So what's the seed? It's the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Okay, so first, there's a twofold purpose for parables. First, and this is an intention that Jesus has, first, the parables conceal the mysteries of the kingdom of God from those who are outside. And that's intentional. Um, you know, if you hear something like this and it doesn't pique your curiosity to find out more, then it just ends up a mystery. And it goes over your head and it, it, it bears no, no fruit. The second purpose for the parables is to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to those who are within that kingdom or to those who are entering into that kingdom. Uh, this little section here is quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. In that context, sorry, verses 12 through, uh, well, verse 12, that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So that's a statement of judgment in that context of Isaiah chapter 6. Uh and I, I think that the Isaiah text also seems to indicate uh, not that the people are this way, but that they are made this way in response to their willful rejection of God. Um, meaning that God is bringing about this blinding and this deafening. So again, pointing back to Romans 1, this is God giving people up to the hardness of their hearts. Okay, so the explanation of the parable then comes, again, the seed is the, the word that is sown. We might break it down to just the basic gospel message, repent and believe. The path, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word sown in them. I mean, every, anybody ever shared the basic gospel with somebody and had them be like, screw that. I remember on like a little mission trip I took to Chicago I was probably like 14 with my youth ministry and um, sharing the gospel with this guy who was like kind of a punk rocker. And he was like, he said something along the lines of, wait, so you're telling me that if I don't believe this, I go to hell? And I was, and we were like, yeah, it was like me and two of my friends. We were like, well, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. And he was like, awesome, man. Cause that's where all the cool party kids are gonna be. We'll just be drinking beers and hanging out and partying. And there you go. Like, there, the word is sown and Satan comes and takes away the word, even manipulates it to flip it on its head to make it sound like all the fun will be in hell and all the boring people will be in heaven. Or someone would say, that's for, that's for you, but not for me. When you shared something about Jesus, sure. they would just answer, yeah, that's for you, but not for me. Yeah, that's more and more the response these days, right? Well, that's your truth. Good for you. My truth is different. Interesting. Then you have the rocky ground where um, it's received with joy, but then no root takes place and they fall away, whether it's persecution or tribulation. I've seen this too. Um, you know, I can name names from 11, 12 years of Maricopa Springs. People who've either come and at some point professed faith. I mean, I've got one person in mind who even my wife took her through like a long process of discipleship for like six months. And then some other thing happened and now this person is like a rampant God hater. Um, then you have the thorns. These are people who hear the word, but rather than have deep confidence or faith in Christ, other things come along, you know, the desire for riches, um, concerns of this world, and they th that word gets choked out. They bear no fruit. And then obviously you have the good soil. They hear, accept, and bear good fruit. And I do think that this correlates with John 15, with the, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. If you don't bear fruit, those branches are cut off and thrown into the fire. There's nothing to be done for them. 
So I think an actually um, inappropriate application from this passage that I hear from time to time is an evangelistic application. I, I think that there is a correlation. Like the, the agriculture metaphor is used quite a bit by Jesus. It's used quite a bit throughout the Bible, probably because this was a predominantly agrarian culture. And so it would be something that people would know and understand and relate to. And Jesus does say, like Luke chapter 10, verse 2, right? <clears throat> the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Um, but I, I think it's actually an inappropriate application of this passage to say that Jesus is talking about, like, evangelism here. I don't think that's what he really has in mind. Um, I think that a mark of maturity for a Christian is reproduction, meaning that you boldly proclaim the gospel and that there's fruit that comes from that. Um, and I don't think it's like a coincidence maybe that Jesus talks about like seeds and harvest, but the yield here when it says 30, 60, and 100 fold is not saying like, you know, some Christians will lead 30 people to Jesus and other Christians will lead 60 people to Jesus and other people will lead 100 people to Jesus. He is just talking about what naturally happens with good seed sown in good soil, right? What happens when the word takes root in a heart that is transformed? It bears fruit. I think it's just as simple as that. Anybody want to disagree with that or have any other thoughts or questions or comments on that? So to summarize, you're saying we're not looking for the fruit being how many people we lead to Christ, we're looking for the fruit within our own lives and about how we're being obedient. Yes. Amen. Yes. And I can say that and at the same time still say I encourage people to share the gospel. Um, and you but, share the gospel by just throwing it out everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, you can be wise with your seed too. Yeah, I think you're just looking for opportunities to point people to Jesus and, and let him take it from there, right? Um, and, and that can be done in lots of different ways. It, it can be done by telling somebody you stand condemned before God. It can be done by saying something like Christ went to the cross that you could be redeemed. Um, it can be done by, uh, I think, potentially inviting somebody to come to church. with you. Like, I think there's lots of different ways that you can do this. And I think, and I've said this before in my preaching on evangelism, I think one of the fruits of evangelism is actually increasing condemnation for people, right? So that when somebody stands before the throne of God, they won't be able to say, well, I never knew, right? Well, actually, there was that one time when Grady uh, pointed you to Jesus and you didn't want to have anything to do with it, right? Um, but I, I want to reiterate, just for the sake of, of um, the audio recording, that I am referring to the fruit that is born in people's lives as a result of the gospel is the primary thing that Jesus is getting at here, not the fruit that comes from evangelism, sharing the gospel. This parable, I think, does have some similar application to the end of Matthew, which we, we didn't read the whole of it, but we touched on it. You know, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and goes and does them. He builds his house on a rock. It's the same kind of concept. Uh, it, it, it's a life that produces holiness and godliness. And so the question then presents itself for us to be, which seed do you want to be? I think that's a great follow-up question. If you lead somebody to Jesus or, or you know somebody who is a recent believer, I think this is a great place to take them to read this passage, this chapter of Mark. And I say, what, what seed do you want to be? Which ground? Do you yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, which soil do you want to be? Forgive me. I keep misstating that. Which soil do you want to be? I was just going to say that. Um, and you would hope that they would say, "Well, I want to be the good soil." Okay. Well, then let's do some things that Scripture teaches. Right? Let's let's begin to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. Let's study God's Word together so you can know what's required of you. Let's get you plugged in to fellowship and discipleship in the church. Let's make sure that there's weeds that are going to, like, the things in the world are going to be attracted to draw you away from Christ, but you must hold firm. Yeah, absolutely. You can warn them about those potential dangers, right? Um, 
And I think there's another mistake that we've made in evangelism, which is like, you know, let's just take my example of going down to Chicago and talking to that dude. We were there connected to an inner city church, but I, I per- couldn't personally follow up with that guy. You know, he was probably in his mid-20s and I was a 14-year-old kid from the suburbs. So this is another thing is like, we want to make sure that if we are sowing seed, that we are, to the best of our ability, doing some kind of follow-up with people like that. Um, I think a lot of times there's kind of this like, well, let's go do some street evangelism and I'll give people a gospel and I'll get them to pray this prayer and then I'll never see this person ever again. Um, at the very least, you need to get them connected to the family of God. Okay, we got to stop there. So, yeah, I think we, we made some good progress. All right, how about I close in prayer? God, I simply ask that we would be the good soil that bears fruit. And, and we recognize that we don't do that in our own power, our own strength, but it, it, it all blossoms out of this truth that we are dead to sin through uh, our association with Christ and the crucifixion and resurrection. And we are alive to Christ because of his resurrection and we are filled with the spirit. And so, God, I pray that as a result of that reality, we would bear an abundant yield of righteousness and holiness because of all that Christ has done for us. Amen. Amen.